So, Bob, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a while. It's been a long while. People have been requesting that you come back. They, they, they emailed me, and they're like, where's Bob? Wow, that's uh, very surprising to hear. Very nice to hear. Thank you. It's not surprising at all, Bob. People, everyone loves you. Can you think of a single person who doesn't love you in real life? Yeah, I can. <laughs> <laughs> is that today's topic? Well, I can't think of anyone who doesn't like you, honestly. <laughs> this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? I am your good old friend from graduate school way back when and a counselor in town here in Seattle. My first question is, are you wearing that Penn State uh, sweatshirt just to rub it in my face about the bowl game uh, with, with UW? Is uh, that... I didn't think about that, but now that you mention it, that's just a side benefit. No, I wear this every Saturday. <laughs> uh, we bet on that game and, and you won. Uh, we bet my old IOU. Yeah, your framed IOU, and now I have another one. I'm going to have to take that frame apart and add to it. 12 yeah, bucks, folks. 12 bucks. So this will be relevant later, but Bob and I used to play cards and gamble all the time, and we would sometimes run out of cash to pay our debts at the end of the night, and, right. and so we would just give each other IOUs. We called them markers, and... Uh, I don't know how long ago I gave you a marker and you kept it. You were always notorious for holding on to markers for years. Oh, I kept them in my wallet. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. And then you framed a marker that I gave you one, one night. That's right. And you put it on the line during the bowl game uh, between UW and Penn State college football. And, uh, and it was miserable. We lost. It was a close game. Yeah. But, uh, and then I gave you another IOU. Yeah, for six bucks. <laughs> So you had some questions uh, with before I tr- uh, started pressing uh, record. What, what were those questions? How did you score an interview with Irvin Yalom? Yeah, well, a listener emailed me and said, you should have Irvin Yalom on your show. And I was like, that's ridiculous. He would never be on my show. And the, and the emailer said, well, give it a try. And I did. And then he replied, and then it happened. And I was not... You know, I was not uh, expecting that. Wow. Yeah. How was it? It was interesting. On on one level, it was amazing to talk with him because, you know, I've seen documentaries, obviously read his books. Yeah. I've seen interviews and stuff, but it's a whole different thing when it's you and him. Yeah. Interacting, you know? Yeah. And he's pretty good with, it's Zoom, not Skype. Oh. I hate Skype. Zoom is the new Skype. And so I'm Zooming with him. Right. And he's pretty good with it because he would sit real close to his laptop so that his face was my entire... And I have a huge computer screen, right. you know? And so it, it was like he was right there with me. You nice. Know? And so it was, it was really interesting. And I feel... I, You know how when... You, like when I went to Freud's house in London, right. his, his, his second house, you know, in London, he, used to, he obviously grew up in Vienna, but... Right. Um, I felt like I had touched the sacred, right? Yeah, yeah. And talking with Yalom, I feel the same way. I, I couldn't agree more. Right? Yeah. Not only him, with all of his... I mean, can you think of another more prominent therapist who's alive today? No. And, and to be honest with you, if I could have therapy with anybody in the world, I'd go see him. He, well, he's still practicing. Well. And he... Uh, I think he does online now. Too. I think he does over Zoom. No kidding. Yeah. Well, he's on. He's on Talkspace is like one of the major online therapy outfits right. that ha- has been a sponsor of our show, 
and he's on like he's involved with them now. No kidding. Yeah, he hate. So he wrote about it in his in his memoir about how at for 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 decades he thought distance therapy was ridiculous. I mean, for him, he's Mister Humanistic, you know, existential, and so he he just thought that's there's no way that's going to work. But in the last few years, somehow he came around to it, and now he's actually working with a former student of mine who is working for Talkspace to help them de- uh, train their therapist, essentially, to do online therapy. Really? Yeah. Which, which, and uh, the majority of Talkspace therapy is text-based, so, you know, meaning just like a text, uh, meaning that you send a text to your therapist and a couple hours later your therapist sends a text back and which is the most uh further the it's the furthest from in office therapy you can get i think yeah aside from like maybe smoke signals or something <laughs> i don't know but it it's um interesting to see that you know in his 80s he's still open minded that's amazing so you know, not only him but yeah. he has been in heavily involved with other major figures. He was heavily involved with Rollo May. He was there when he died. He was heavily involved with Victor Frankel, oh. Virginia Satir, really? Mnuchin, Don Jackson, Gregory Bateson. Uh, who else? There, there's, you know, Carl Rogers. I mean, he was there. He, he was, he was contributing, contributing, you know, to all that. Yeah. And, uh, sought out to meet these people. And, um, so not only he is prominent and amazing and a major figure in our field, but the, but the people he's, he's met. So oh, yeah. I feel like I am now, you know, one degree away from people like Victor Frankel and Rollo right. May and Virginia Satir right. and Salvador Mnuchin. And, you know, it's just like, and, you know, countless other people that, that he worked with. It, it's, um, I, I, you know, it, it makes me feel like, oh, our field is... I feel like after meeting him, it shrunk the field down to me. Mm-hmm. To it's like, oh, these are humans who lived yeah. in real life, right? And I am not that far away from that. You know, they're they're regular human beings, right? Uh, so there's that. I mean, what's your relationship with Yellen? Oh well, um, when I was right out of college, I read Love's Executioner. And it's funny because that was the second time I read it. And the first time I was like, eh. And the second time I was like, I really got it. I, well, I don't know if I really got it. I really loved it. So I wrote him and I said, great book. Where should I go to grad school? And this is me. I'm living in Pennsylvania, right? So this is like early 90s. Yeah, this is 1991 or two. And he wrote back and said, thank you for the compliment. And then um, uh, suggested two schools in the Bay Area both of which I applied to in 92 for the 93 school year and got into neither, which at the time I thought, oh, that's a bad thing. But it actually ended up being okay. You know, like the way my, the way my work life has gone is fine. And I don't feel disappointed in that. Was one Saybrook? No, uh, California School of Professional Psychology in Alameda and the Wright Institute, which I really wanted to get into the Wright Institute. That was a really cool place. Uh, folks, just a little note for those of you who grad school bound, don't swear during your interview. Is that what you did? Yeah, yeah. What'd you do? I just got nervous and I, you know, fuck this and shit that and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it's like I was... Are you sure that's why you didn't get in, though? No, I'm... Yes, actually, I am because I actually spoke spoke to uh, the admissions person and she's like, 
great scores. You look great on paper. Great, you know, essay. What happened at your interview? <laughs> and what happened is I got flustered because the questions that the fellow was asking me were the things I wrote about. And I didn't know how to respond. And I got sort of irritated, but not like, but really just thrown off. And I should have just answered his questions directly. And I didn't. I just got nervous. So anyways, I didn't get into graduate Meaning school. that you thought, haven't you read my paper? Yeah. Or, uh, or I don't want to repeat myself because you've already... Both of those. Okay. Yeah. Because if you did read it and I'm repeating myself, you know, I should have just repeated myself, you know, and maybe he didn't read it. Right. I have... I, I, I'm in, uh, involved in that right. process at the university. And one, we don't have time to read everyone's admissions yeah. papers. And, and two... If we did read it, we probably skimmed it, and yeah. it might not have been right before we talked to you. Right. You know what I mean? Because, you know, there's dozens and dozens of these applicants. So um, so it could have been that, too. It could. I'm sure it could have been, and I yeah. didn't understand any of that at the time. I was very young. So uh, about 10 years later, he came to – Yallen came to Seattle and was given a talk. You know, there's a bunch of – You moved to Seattle – 92. Oh, okay. Yeah. Why did you move to Seattle? My brother was in the Coast Guard, got stationed here, and right. invited me to come with them. And I was tired of what I was doing in Pennsylvania, so I moved out here. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, early 2000s? No. Yeah, yeah. We were out of school by then. Yeah. He came to town and... Well, so you're skipping, and people should know, by 95, you actually went to Antioch. Yeah, that's when I went to school and met you. And that's when we met, yeah. Anyway. Right. So, And then Love's Executioner was... An assigned book, I think, in our it first was. in our first quarter. It was, yeah, yeah. So, book. Love's Executioner for those out there, it's a book. I think it has ten chapters. Ten. I have it right over here. Yeah, but I think it has like ten chapters, each on a different client that he worked with. Right, and he talks about meeting them and their issues and his own process. That was the most yeah. interesting part about it was just how self-disclosing yeah. he was and how human he was. Yeah, he would talk about how some clients would bore him or upset him or make him feel inadequate yeah. or make him angry or, yeah. uh, you know, just various different kinds of reactions he would have. Yeah. And I, you know, in my first quarter as a 24 year old, you know, douchebag, well, easy, I was blown away. I just thought like the, the permission that Irvin Yalom yeah. gave me to be a human was, right. uh, very notable. He's the best. Yeah. Yeah. So when he came to town, I was going to this talk. You know, it's like 500 people in a room and he's giving a talk. And he actually said, people still ask me if I practice. <laughs> he was in his 70s then. So he, how old is he now? Do you know? Well, he's in his 80s. So, so he must early, early 70s. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, it must be. Yeah. So I watched, he walked through the lobby and went to the, uh, you know, the cafe in the hotel to have breakfast. So I, I went up to him and I'm like, you know, my name is Bob and I wrote you this letter and do you remember me? And he just kind of laughed. He said, well, you know, I get a lot of mail. <laughs> and, but he was very gracious and he signed my book and, you know, just a lovely guy. Which book? Love's Execution. Oh, okay. Though, you know, have, if you, have you read his fiction? No, but oh. I've, I've, I saw his movie uh, that was based, that they made a movie out of When Nietzsche Wept. They did? Yeah. What's it called? When Nietzsche wept, and it came out like ten years ago, and it has yeah, it's like a major production. It's not, it has like people you would recognize in it. Do you remember who? Uh, I can't remember. Yeah, but, it doesn't matter. But I, it's, I didn't see it. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. 
Uh, I'd be curious if you have you read that one. Oh yeah, I read I've read both of his novels. Yeah, I'd be curious. He, has, he might have three. I've read two of them. Um, yeah. So um, so yeah, I'd I'd recommend checking that out. Yeah. Uh, last year, a couple years ago, a documentary was made about him too, called Yalom's Cure. No, I didn't know that. Which uh, is um, interesting to watch. You know, yeah, it's an interesting kind of look into his life. And then he just published uh, Being Myself. Sorry, Becoming Myself. Nice. Which is his memoir. Right. And I'm, I'm assuming you haven't read that one yet. No, I have not. So uh, it's a great book, and that's just, you know the current thing he's, that he's trying to plug around. And it's basically like 30 small chapters about different topics. So it's, you know, like about his mom or his dad or oh. his sister or going to Vienna or Viktor Frankl or, you know— Personal, Family. yeah, just little, yeah, very personal. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it it. There's so much information. It it moves real fast. Yeah. He he doesn't really go into that much depth, mm-hmm. but that makes it really easy to read because yeah. you just can. It's just very breezy reading, you know. And if you're in the field, like I've been saying, it's like he's been connected to so many people and yeah. so many things, and I didn't realize how many people he was actually connected to. And he glances over things like one sentence. He talks about taking a Friday all-day class about family therapy with Virginia Satir for, like, a year or something, and then that's all he talks about. Like, he doesn't go into anything more about Virginia Satir, and you're just like, uh, tell me more about that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's just all these things that he experienced, and uh, and he moved around a lot, and he, he loved, like, he lived in Hawaii. He, he worked for the Army. He was a psychiatrist in the Army oh, right. in the early days, and he was in Hawaii for a few years, and then... Uh, and then he was, you know, at Stanford, and and then he uh, lived in he lived in London, I think, for a while, and then he traveled to Vienna, and he likes to go to places, you know. Again, so meeting him and reading his book, it's like, oh, he's a human being. That yeah. was one of the things. He even has a chapter on how people idealize him. Yeah, there's a whole chapter on like. You know, it's interesting that you get idealized. <laughs> you know, people come to me and da da da, and I and he's just like, I don't. You know, it doesn't really make any sense to do that. And uh, so that was a that was kind of an interesting thing. The other thing I'll say is that I thought by touching the sacred that he would solve all my problems. Oh, how'd it go? <laughs> it didn't solve my problems. Did it get any of them? Uh, it, I mean, it furthered my problems, let's put it that way, <laughs> you know, the, the journey <laughs> and, uh, didn't make him worse by any means, but it, um, talking with him, I had so much ridiculous idealized oh, expectations no, about it. what it would mean to talk with him. Right. And of course he's a human being right. and, and he's not, even if he w- is, as amazing as I think he is, he's not going to pour it all into a half an hour Zoom conversation, yeah. you know. And so it 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 was interest. It was um, I had a mixture of emotions after talking with him. Uh-huh. Say. And I want to talk with him more. And so I'll, I'm, I'm going to see. A, I have a lot more questions. I want to talk. So in his memoir, he talks about uh, how Viktor Frankl was a narcissistic jerk. Oh. And and insecure, like really insecure. Oh, and and but then in the end he's like, but you know his work was really important to the field, and I love it. But he but he talks for like a few pages about his, in, his you know his experiences with Viktor Frankl, and 
it does not paint him in a good light. Which so is not only was he in so like one example was he was Victor Frankel was writing a manuscript and sent it to Irvin Yalom to review. And there's this one section in there that talks about uh, that Victor Frankel was writing about how people were uh, he was giving a talk and the audience gave him five standing ovations. And he wrote about that explicitly in his book. And Irvin Yalom was like, uh, that comes across as kind of narcissistic, a little yeah. little braggy, you yeah. know. And actually, I couldn't stop thinking about how your reaction to my book. You, you. I don't think you ever had that. In fact, you had the opposite reaction to my book in certain sections. You, <laughs> you were like, you're beating yourself up too much. You know, you're just yeah. like you're being too hard on yourself here. Like, yeah. if you use that word humble more one more time, I'm gonna scream. Yeah, yeah. And you would write that. You'd oh. be like, ah, humble. You know. Um, anyway, <laughs> so, uh, so. Uh, Irving Yalom's like, well, how do I give this feedback to the great Viktor Frankl that this passage doesn't come across very well? Right. And he just, he, he did it gingerly, but he, you know, said something. And Viktor Frankl called him and said, or something communicated to him somehow and said something like, well, uh, Irv, you don't understand. I, I got five standing ovations. So I don't know what the, what are you, what are you saying? Like, he didn't get it at all. Like, it, it, it just, the the notion that, saying such a thing doesn't come across well was completely lost in Viktor Frankl, which is, um, and then there are other kinds of, like he invited him out to Stanford to give a talk and uh, something happened where Viktor Frankl ended up coming across really badly to the audience. And somehow even, I think he even did a demonstration on stage with a fake client and actually harmed the person on stage and like someone walked out of the room and said like i'm not gonna stand by and watch this abuse happen yeah and victor frankel was really upset afterwards and upset at irvin yalom for like oh. this that this happened and irv irvin you know was like uh i don't know what it's kind of all your fault but like i, I don't know what to say and and it's and i i did invite you out here and um and uh and americans californians were a lot less revering of authority than uh -huh. people in Europe were at the time, especially mm -hmm. in the 70s and stuff. And and so uh, Irvin Yon was like, well, maybe that's a part of it. I don't know. But but then, um, and so, so yeah, there were other kinds of things like that with Viktor Frankl. But, um, and that's just, that's just a couple pages, you know what I mean? The book, yeah. his memoir, Becoming Myself, has all sorts of stuff in there like that. Did you read Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning? Absolutely. It's disappointing to hear this story. It is. Totally. And it also, it, it sort of like calls into question, you know, what he wrote in his book, because he's not living it. Right. It's weird. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Viktor Frankl, I did a whole episode on him, and, uh, you know, in the episode, I said something like, I would venture to say that... Uh, of the books on therapists' uh, shelves, yeah, Man's Search for Meaning is by far the most represented book. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I can't think of another book that everyone would have. And, I mean, Irvin Yalom doesn't have books that are on... I mean, Irvin Yalom's books are on... I would venture to say everyone has an Irvin Yalom book on their shelf, <laughs> but everyone has Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. Uh in fact, whenever I go into a therapist office, I I'll look for it. I'll just be like, oh, there it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> Litmus test. Yeah. <laughs> just like, oh, yeah, there it is. You know? It's sort of like whenever I go to a, a Mexican restaurant and they're playing, uh, 
you know, Spanish language music. Yeah. I'm always waiting to hear the word Corazon. No, I don't know that. Is that. Spanish speakers out there listening, can you please let me know if Corazon, if you've noticed that, because Corazon is heart. Heart. And it rhymes really well, I think, with a lot of different words. Oh. It's sort of like in, a, in American music, baby or yeah. love. Like you'll hear a more, a more, a lot in, in Spanish language music. Um, but like, I'll just be eat, eating my nachos at Cactus downtown and which is a restaurant downtown and and then all this you know and i'll just i won't be really listening intently to this spanish language song that i've never heard but then all of a sudden corazon will just ring out true so so my point is is that man's search for meaning is the corazon of music um or of books so um would you like to touch me that i have i have well you've met him too so you've actually met him in person yeah so uh over I guess his, we could touch each other. Over his eggs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what was your impression of him when you met him? Uh, well, you know, not much of an impression when he was sitting there having breakfast, except he was very gracious with me. I was interrupting his meal. But um, I remember really liking him uh, as he talked about whatever. I don't even remember what he talked about that day. But I just remember thinking, he's the real deal. He's like a regular guy. And... As, as similar to the way he is in his writing. Right. I really, I liked him. Yeah, so I thought so too. I was like, it, it sort of contextualizes his writing so much more for me because he's kind of a, just a soft-spoken, nice, yeah. non-intellectual. Like, he didn't come across to me as an intellectual. Yeah. He came across to me like, just a regular guy. Yeah. <laughs> right. And... Someone who doesn't know things the same way that I don't know things. Yeah. And didn't have any special answers to anything. Right. And and didn't reassure me or didn't... There was nothing that he said where I was like, oh, golden nugget of, of wisdom, you know? Yeah. Because, of course, why? You know, if he's he's a regular person. That's what I like about him. Right. Whereas someone like Viktor Frankl might mm. have like a like a golden egg of wisdom for you. You know, he would look you right in the eye and yeah. say something like, don't, you know, whereas with Irvin, he's just, he's just humble. He's just like, well, I don't know. And he said that a lot. He's just like, well, I don't know how to answer that one. <laughs> 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 so, so it was great. Anyway. Are you going to publish the uh, meeting? Yeah. 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 So Good. this talk might come out after that. Makes sense that it would. Yeah. So, um, Yeah. It's funny because the last thing I'll say is I, I've been telling various people about that I was going to talk to him or that I have talked to him. And I, I get, uh, you know, one of two reactions. One is just like, huh? And, and the other one is is like, oh, my God. Yeah. Like it, you either – I see people either flip the F out or they're just like they don't care. Yeah. Even people in the field. There, yeah. there's, there's people, I guess, younger therapists don't really understand. Maybe they don't know them. They don't, yeah, maybe they don't know him or something. But um, I was talking with some therapists, some younger people. There was like, oh, I don't care. But I told Rebecca Bloom, and I tell you, and yeah, I tell other people, and and they're 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 flipping out to the extent that I would be flipping out oh. if someone I knew talked was yeah. going to interview him. But anyway, hey, I wanted to ask you one question. Yeah, um, is his group therapy textbook still like the textbook? Or yeah, and he's working on a sixth edition. Jeez, Louise. Yeah. I mean, I have it right here too. Yeah. Well, I don't teach group therapy. I assume. Yeah. I assume. 
Um, I Corey ha- Corey has a book. Corey's one Gerald of them. Corey. Yeah, ha- has a book on group therapy too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure the Corey book and the Yalen book are the the main books, right? Yeah, the Cor- I don't know. It's been so long since I was a student. Um, the Corey book is more of a summary of all the theories, and Irvin Yalom's book is more of a direct, uh, you know, model and recommendation. And like it's, it's huge. Like you look oh. at his books, it's like three times as long <laughs> as the oh, rest it, of his books. It's enormous. Yeah, and it's interesting. He talked about in the interview how there was a point in time in his career in the 60s when he was equally in love with family therapy and group therapy. And I didn't know he did family therapy. Well, he he was being taught by Virginia, Virginia Satir, Satir, right. You said that. And right. was involved in the Mental Research Institute, which was the epicenter of family therapy in Palo Alto, which is where he lives right now. So he was, you know, right there. And he had colleagues back then who only did family therapy, which is, which anyway, so that was interesting. It's just like, how interesting would it have been if he would have been, if he would have published his first books on family therapy, you know, it'd have been so interesting. Right. Um, but one thing he writes about in his memoir was, you know, at the time, 60s, 70s, family therapy was this new model and people were so excited about it that some therapists, that's all they did. Mm Mm-hmm. They they didn't they refused to see individuals. Oh, uh-huh. they it wasn't just something they did with some clients, you know. No, everybody, everyone. You call them up for therapy, and they say, "Yeah, bring your family." Well, bring everyone in your house. Yeah, yeah. And it and um, that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> what do you think about that? Uh, it bums me out. Uh, one mm-hmm. because the the main thing it bums me out is that I am as a supervisor and an educator. I am constantly beating my head against the wall with my trainees regarding you're a family therapist. At, at least try family therapy sometimes. I'm exaggerating because some people are ab- obviously hip to it. But people in agencies, you know, they're internships, they go to internship. And the way that agencies work, it's basically, and the way that, because it's all based on funding, right? So the state and the county give money to these agencies to provide therapy for these people. And, and the people get therapy for free at these agencies Right, and the interns do this work and the state, everything is based on a client, individual client right. uh, diagnosis. Like an and, identified patient kind of thing. Right. And so they don't, and sometimes they don't even pay for family therapy mm-hmm. they do. But uh, at any rate, uh, the client is the 14 year old who happens to be, exhibiting the family system symptom. And so, and then the supervisors kind of get in on that, even though many of them might be family therapists themselves, the funders, every, you know, all the languaging, all the files, all the paperwork, all the, you know, all the on-site training and everything. And then I'm talking with the interns or the supervisor, supervisees, and I'm like, so, um, you know, uh, what's your involvement with the parents? And they're like, oh yeah, I meet with the parents sometimes. Um, but my client, da, da 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 I'm like, no, 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 no. The parents are the client and the kid are the client. Everyone's the client. You're a family therapist. You know, I don't say it like that because that's a dickish way to say it. But, but it's close to that, honestly, because I'm, uh, it, it, it's, you're in a marriage and family therapy program, haven't, but it, I'm not frustrated at the trainees because, of course, they're just trying to survive. Right. And I'm just frustrated at the system and the way that this whole thing goes down and that I have to basically, 
I feel like I'm beating something into people's heads that they don't want to be beat into their head because yeah. they go into the agencies and they don't get that there. And in order to do what I'm telling them to do, they basically have to risk getting in trouble. You know, I talk with people and they're like, well, I don't know if my supervisor will let me meet with the mother individually, you know, because in family therapy, there are times, you know, (laughs) to me, it's so obvious. It sounds such, it's such a stupid thing to say out loud, but if a, if a five-year-old has problems, it makes sense to meet alone with the parents sometimes, right? Uh, yeah, it does. To talk about parenting at the very least. Right. Uh, and really, what's the f- home life like? What traumas have the parents been through? What sort of projective identifications are the parents involving with their own children? What kind of transferences do the parents have? Uh, it, you know, we'll say at least a factor, you know, if not the factor, especially when you're talking about five-year-olds, you know. Uh, but really, any 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 kid of any age, and I'm talking to a supervisee, and they're like, "Well, my on-site supervisor won't let me meet it alone with the parents. Mm. They're not going to let me do that." And yeah. I'm just like, "It and and I know that it doesn't matter to the funding. They'll still get paid. So it's some sort of philosophical thing that some agencies have. Like, I'll, I'll they'll say like, "Well, we have a family therapy department that's somewhere else." And I'm like, you know, you're not paying the intern anything, so it's it's no skin off your back. You're getting paid for the hour because you can because it's all based on tier systems and all yeah. that kind of stuff. So, so you're just doing it because you you just have a disdain for our field, even though you're from our field. Do you know what I mean? I do. So 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 that's bothersome but then it's it but then it's doubly bothersome because i hear about these stories from Irvin Yalom about how there were therapists that that's all they did it wasn't just something they did sometimes it was what they did with every single client now i would never go that far because mm-hmm. there's absolutely usefulness to individual therapy but to see these to hear these stories of just the freedom and the dedication and the they say, well, this is what we do. You know, because if, if you say that to clients, they'll go along with it. You're just like, well, this is what we do. Yeah. And you're okay, you know, and then the benefits of being able to get everyone in the room and actually like get people talking and, and the, you know, the flexibility and just all the potentials that can happen in a situation like that. I just, um, that's how I feel about it. Is it falling out of vogue? <sighs> yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Huh. And, and I, what, I, I would like to do uh, a friend of mine, or actually a colleague, actually a former student of mine, but now a colleague, Laura um, Matthews, and her, she got married, and I can't remember her new last name, <laughs> but she wants to something with the word Barry in it, Glenberry, Glenberry. Anyway, she wants to. Uh, she told me, maybe even on this podcast, that she wanted to start a family therapy institute in Seattle, and I, and when I heard that, I was like. <gasps> Oh my God! Why isn't there a family therapy institute in Seattle, where you're the center for family therapy, and you market yourself as that, and uh, and you inspire your, and you have a, a philosophy of family right. therapy, and you support family therapy efforts, and you have family therapy experts, and you advertise yourself as the family therapy place? Because honestly, where family therapy happens in Seattle are at places where they are at least slightly, if not 
greatly hostile to family therapy. Yeah. So to have a place where it'd be like, you know, there's eating disorder clinics. And imagine if, and there's a reason for that. It's because when you go to agencies and, and other kinds of clinics, uh, they don't specialize in it. And you, I'm guessing, have situations where people go in with an eating disorder and they don't really get the the help that they need because you have people that are treating various different issues and they kind of know something about eating disorders. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so these eating disorder clinics pop up because you have a need for that. And it's just, and then to, to have her say, Ooh, I'm going to start a family therapy institute. I'm just like, Oh yeah, we need that. Yeah. It's both good news and bad news, isn't it? Like yeah. we're in a position where we actually need that sort of thing. It's not just happening. Right. Yeah. But then again, if she starts it, it'll be happening. Yeah. But I know she's also overwhelmed with a lot of things right now, so she probably won't do it. Maybe I should do it. I sometimes think about that. You you used to run, you, you have a DBT group. I do. And were you kind of a landlord at one point? Landlord? You mean like I owned a property? Well, like you leased, you had, you like subleased or something, didn't you? We owned a townhouse and we leased it to, you know, folks that were renting in Seattle. Yeah. Oh, but not therapists. Oh no! I, there was a there was a time when I was looking to buy a building and and like yeah, host a bunch of therapists in the same like building. in Wedgwood or Lake City or something. yeah down there Maple Leaf way yeah and uh, that we didn't end up pursuing that. Oh, Okay, would you ever start an institute? No. How come? I'm at this point. I don't want to do more work. There's there's other things I want to spend my time on. Totally. And that actually is intimidating. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think about that sometimes, and then I, sorry, and then I, I just kicked his foot. I didn't just apologize for no reason. <laughs> Although, I'm sure it didn't actually hurt you, so I don't know why I'm apologizing. I take my apology back, Bob. You very and, you very and your, unhumble of you. You, <laughs> you and your foot can F off. All right, let's take a break, and when we get back, let's, let's respond to some patron emails. What do you say? Sounds good. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, do so now. Become a patron. Go to patreon.com. It's really the best way you can show your support for the podcast, and you actually also get a lot of benefits. All right, so Anonymous Patron writes, How does one get over the fear of talking in therapy? I've been seeing my therapist for a year and a half, and we have an awesome relationship. But every time we talk about something important, I get scared, Hmm. and the next sessions are spent in a great deal of silence. I feel like I'm wasting valuable session time. What do you think? Well, that sounds really hard. Yeah. Because the, the thing I would suggest is talk about the fear, but that's a pretty tall order when you're already scared. Right. Right. It's like our common advice to stuff like this, well, let's just talk about it. But of course, it's a catch-22 because right. if you can't talk about the easy things, it's going to be even harder, harder to talk about this, right? And yet, at the same time, this person has a golden opportunity. They have a good relationship with their therapist. So it sounds like that, that therapist is probably going to be open to hearing about this. And boy, what a rich mind. I mean, that's, that's, that person could, I'm just imagining the freedom that could come from taking the risk. Yeah. So I hope, I hope you will. I think you'll be glad you did. Yeah. 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 It's a tough one because of that catch 22. Right. Right. Um, I will say that it's a common issue. I've had issues like this with my own therapists. Uh, I, I would say it's actually a kind of a central issue to me in terms of, I mean, I can certainly keep a conversation going and I can certainly be vulnerable about some things with my therapist, but 
but there are certain topics that it is so hard to open up. Yeah. You know, it, certain topics where you're just like, ugh, uh, let's talk about this other thing. Oh, yeah. Have you ever ran into that before? You mean personally? Yeah. <laughs> is this a trick question? <laughs> you know, I'm not at the... I don't big... know. You seem like the kind of guy where you would just lay it out on the line. I do a fair amount of that, but there are things that I've never talked about. Oh, really? Yeah. But are they central to um, my welfare? It couldn't hurt, probably, but they're probably not central. And I'm also not of the opinion that everything that's in me has to be, you know, fair game for therapy. Yeah. I think it's okay to have some privacy. But have you ever had a had this experience where where you're just like struggling with vulnerability, and then you kind of reel back after revealing too much because it felt unsafe somehow or something? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, very much. Not just in therapy, but in life. Right. Yeah. Right. And so to that, I'll say it's totally okay to have that process. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong. It's, it's a normal, healthy yeah. defense of, of not being hurt. There's a reason why we right. all uh, don't just lay it all out there for everyone because some right. people aren't nice about stuff like that. Yeah. I, I really like what you're saying is universal to be yeah. afraid. Yeah. Like we shouldn't, we shouldn't, think of this person who wrote in as having some kind of pathology. Right. That fear of vulnerability is universal. Right. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and I would... So, given the Catch-22... Of course, just being able to talk about it would be wonderful. But if you can't do that, what I would concentrate on is while you're talking about the small stuff with your therapist or doing whatever activity you do that is safer, you really concentrate on absorbing the safety of it all, you know, just like focus intentionally on, okay, this person feels safe. I'm, we can talk about this. I want to talk about these other things, but I, I don't feel ready to do that. But in this mode, I can relax and I can feel safe and, this person isn't hurting me. They've never hurt me. Uh, I'm not ready to talk about other stuff yet, but, you know. The other thing, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, is that you might actually be bumping up against PTSD issues where, uh, I mean, you're not explicitly saying this, patron, but it's possible that you're avoiding because of the tremendous pain and distress that emerges when you actually dive into particular topics. Yeah. So if that's the issue, then you actually don't want to go there until you have the setup in therapy uh, for trauma therapy to be safe and and paced well, if that makes any sense. But anyway, uh, another email from another patron here about confidentiality. I was involved in a sexual misconduct case with a past therapist. It's over now, and I have a new therapist. I told my new therapist about the details of the sexual misconduct with the previous therapist, and this new therapist told people in her office building about my case. She told them about the case and additional details that are not public knowledge. She didn't mention my name, but she did mention the therapist's name. Was this unethical? I have not been able to find any, anything concrete about her right to do this. It has definitely affected the therapeutic relationship. We had previously discussed that I didn't want people to know about it. I can't control the media, but does a therapist have the right to do this? What do you think about this, Bob? Oh, boy. I I really want to sit with it for a bit. I, I feel bad for this person. Yeah. I could totally 
That must feel terrible. Yeah. It must just feel awful. Yeah. Can I trust this person? Plus, do these people know who I am? You yeah. know, like, so exposing or potentially exposing. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, totally exposing because it's like you, um, you know, sexual misconduct case. I'm just trying to, like, imagine what that would be. You know, it's like, I'm assuming that she had uh, sex with her therapist or some kind of contact and the client ended up, the patron ended up complaining and it ended up becoming a public or a legal matter. And yeah. by definition, those are somewhat public. Mm-hmm. And the therapist may have lost his or her license or something. Yeah. And then she goes to another therapist and tells the details because it's already exposing as it is, right? Mm-hmm. And um, even though it shouldn't be, it's humiliating. And even though it shouldn't be, people are going to judge you about it, you know, because you say you have sex with anyone, they're going to judge you about it as a slut or something. It's mm-hmm. just so stupid. But so there's all that. But then you tell your therapist about some intimate details that really no one probably knew about it, you know, yeah. maybe your ambivalence about the whole thing. Maybe, maybe you still have feelings for the person. Sure. Uh, particular acts that you went through. I don't know. Yeah. And then then your therapist turns around and tells all these other random people and you're just thinking like, what? Like, uh, why did you do that? And you don't know these other people. You don't, I mean, that's the thing to me that even with people that have confidentiality that I, because technically speaking, these other therapists shouldn't be talking about the case, right? But you and I know that there's a percentage of people and a percentage of different stories that are going to, people are going to talk about with other people, their mm-hmm. spouses. And once you tell your spouse, they don't have any legal responsibility. No. And so, so, uh, and, and to me, it's like, even, even if it's just the colleagues that can, that's violating, right. Just because they're therapists doesn't make you ha- and happy about the fact that they know, you know, uh, if, if any of our therapists randomly told, a room of other therapists about it. Just because they're therapists doesn't make us feel, oh, well, that's fine. You know, they're therapists. It's like we still, we, we don't want anyone to know about this stuff. So, so yeah. So I, I don't know if, I don't think it would be easy to ask the therapist next time you see him, her, him or her, um, you know, to, to say that you knew, that you found out that they were disclosing and to ask why they did that. Mm-hmm. You know, but it seems like it's a reasonable thing. It's a reasonable thing to ask, and it it might be. I don't. I don't know. I don't really want to have an opinion about this because we don't know any of the details. Yeah. But I could see not going back. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. My impression was that the ther- the new therapist actually told her that she told her, her colleagues. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. That was my impression. Huh. Um, which is interesting. You know. What What would be the reason for that? Yeah. What would be the reason for any of it, honestly? You know? Yeah. I mean, so, again, we have no idea. We don't know. But I could abs... I mean, imagine someone came to you as a client and told you that they had had this, you know, sexual relationship with their previous therapist. Yeah. And you're in a town and and maybe even know that other therapist. Sure. For me, I I would be tempted to gossip about that i'd be tempted to go to you and be like so you know that thing that happened well i'm actually seeing his that woman mm-hmm. and she told me some things oh boy mm-hmm. was this guy 
I mean, you thought the case was bad. Listen, you know, I would be tempted to do that. Sure. Now I would refrain, <laughs> yeah, because I know better. But I'd be tempted. Would you be tempted? Oh, I think most anybody would be. Right. Tempted. So I, I think that's what happened. You know, I think yeah. it's because I'm trying to think. Again, we don't know the details, but so to go over the ethics to answer your question, patron, are that the circumstances have to be determined. Uh, so according to the ethical codes, and this is generalized across all uh, professions, psychology, marriage, family therapy, counseling, um, is you can disclose information, cl- you know, uh, client information in four different circumstances. Do you know the different circumstances? I probably don't. Well, you probably know some of them. Well, in a case consultation, I would imagine that's one. Right. Consultation. What else? Wait, are we are we talking about like if there's a threat to life, that right. sort of thing? So mandated reporting. Yeah. Uh, uh, what else? Subpoena. Oh, wait. It depends, though, because... No, no, could, we could we for could. a subpoena for legal reasons, yeah. Okay. Um, and there's one more that actually HIPAA has. That, is, it, is, it, is that the Tarasoff one where... If, no. No. It's still mandated reporting yeah. and all that kind of stuff. It's to assist treatment. And it's something that we don't actually do a lot, but medical people do. So... Oh right. So when you go to your physician, right, and um, and you go also to a cardiologist, you don't necessarily need to sign an ROI for them to communicate right. even, uh, release of information, even though technically speaking, uh, they don't have strict written authorization to communicate. But right. they're both treating you, yeah, and it's in your best interest. And that that was actually what HIPAA was designed for was to allow people to do that. Oh, yeah. It's had this paradoxical effect. Right. Jeez. Exactly. So HIPAA originally was designed in the 90s because physicians and medical professionals were finding it hard to communicate with each other. Yeah. And so they set up this federal law that, you know, spanned across all states that allowed for, you know, that defined it all very clearly so people could do it. But what it ended up doing was basically creating, uh, or at least the way it's communicated to us or the way we take it is as limiting uh but it actually is just uh it's some extent it's it's more it's has more freedom do you think in the medical world they experience it as freeing i don't know yeah i don't either i I imagine it it is because they work more closely with other people you know we and especially in private practice we're so isolated Mm -hmm. and rarely have a reason to reach out you know yeah so, but imagine you're a physician and you would have to get an ROI for every single other medical professional. Oh, cumbersome. Every time, you know, it would it would be a pain in the and ass. And then they expire after 90 days and you got to, you know. Right. Who has the who could do it? Right. So, so the different circumstances are one to assist treatment, uh like talking to a client's f- physician. And this the situation doesn't sound like that applies. No. Uh the second situation is for safety reasons. If someone's life is in danger, so th- this actually um, is sort of related to Tarasov, but uh, just a, a general thing of like, if if someone's life is in danger, ethically speaking, you may uh, disclose client information without their approval to other parties. Uh, you could still get sued for it potentially, but uh, it would be a debatable situation. Uh, this doesn't sound like it's that situation. You, you could get sued for not doing it too. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Good point. Number three is when the law requires it, like when mandated reporting or a subpoena or something, and obviously it doesn't apply to that situation. And number four is the first one you said is when consulting, and it's possible that that's what's happening. So 
So if the therapist was consulting and saying something like, I have an interesting case and I would like your help, colleagues, and let me give, give you a little background, which requires disclosing some patient, some client information, then the disclosure is justified, particularly if the people that the, your new therapist told this information to are regular consultants. Um, but even if they're kind of one-off consultants, it, it, it's still generally allowed. Um, but if it's for gossip reasons and non, not consulting reasons, or the, the quote-unquote consultation doesn't really look like a consultation, like you're just in the break room or you're at you're having dinner together or you're at a party or something and you disclosed it like you're not in a staff meeting or something then it would be hard to justify that that's consulting mm-hmm. so so patron if you're interested in you know finding out about the legality one of the one thing you would do is just ask your therapist what were you why did you disclose this and if the therapist says, like, well, I don't know. I just thought it'd be interesting to tell people, oh boy. <laughs> which would be hard f- to imagine a therapist saying. Yeah. But given the emails I get from people, really? I, I would not be surprised. Oh. Um, so, uh, so there's that. Um, or, but if the therapist says, well, we have a regular consultation group where we meet once every couple of weeks, and uh, in the course of all of us going around the room, your, your case came up. And um, then in that situation, it is, a, it is an ethical uh, thing. Now, having said that, um, given the, that the fact that by disclosing, when you consult with other, with colleagues, you're supposed to actually uh, make a reasonable attempt to mask the identity of the client. There's no reason why you have to, you know, like when I consult with other people and when my supervisees tell me about even their own clients, they don't tell me the names. Yeah. And they, I mean, I have access to those files if I want to look at it, but it's like, why risk it? I don't need to know the person's name. What if I know that person, you know? And so it's just easier. It's just like, you know, don't tell, don't tell me the name uh, or don't tell me where they work. Or if they're a famous person, don't tell me how they're famous, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Just, just leave all that out. It's not hard. Um, So unless it's, unless it's, absolutely critical to the case. Which so, is a little hard to imagine. Right. So this therapist could have said, I have a client who uh, suffered from a uh, sexual misconduct with a previous therapist. Um, and honestly, uh, I learned in, in ethics years ago that in a situation like that, in a, because those cases are so public, you should actually lie to your consultants as a way of masking identity. So you'd say it wasn't in this town. It was like in Chicago or something, you know, like you would lie yeah. and say to throw people off the scent because you, you don't want your consultants to know who you're talking about. Cause what if they have a transgression and it harms you somehow, or they know you, you know, right. which is all you never, that's the other thing. You just never know if one of your, cons, one of the people you're consulting with might know you, yeah. you know, or know the therapist that had the complaint against, or liked that therapist, and then goes back. I mean, oh my God! Like, what if that happened? Oh, right? Yeah. If if one of these therapists knows the therapist who lost their license, um, like, ugh, right? Yeah. yeah. Yikes. So, so anyway, um, even if it was a co- consulting situation, 
you as a patron might still have a case if you wanted to say that you were harmed in some way or the therapist didn't do enough to mask your identity. It'd be a hard complaint to win, but at the very least, uh, you could talk to your therapist and say, um, I, I don't like what you did. I wish you, you would have asked me. Because that's another thing. It, I, I would have done this if I had her as a client. I'd be like, so I have a regular consultation group with a bunch of therapists, and uh, your case might come up. And how do you feel about that? Given your given your situation, I don't know how you feel about that. Is is that you know is is it something that you would like me not to do or because I I don't want to I don't I, the thing is is I don't ever want to harm anyone. I never want to bother anyone. I don't want to consult about some a client and then have that client go like that hurt my feelings. You know, I was just like, why do I want to do that? It's not, it's not important enough. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, uh, and that, that's what I tell my trainees is like, cause there's all this talk about like, well, what kind of information can I disclose and stuff? I was like, well, just ask your client, <laughs> just ask them. They, would you want to be asked? And they'll be like, yeah, I'd want to be asked. Well, then why aren't you asking your client? Just ask them if it's okay that you do this. Right. And, and if they're not okay, Try to convince them of the benefits. Try to belay their fears. And if that doesn't work, then don't do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway, so but it appears this therapist did not do that. So, so you can ask your therapist about it. You can do what Bob says and actually just have a conversation with your therapist about it and maybe even terminate as a result because you don't really feel safe, mm-hmm. which, you know, would make sense. Um if the person has a supervisor, you could obviously go then to them too. You can also go to the State Department of Licensing. You can go to the their professional um, ethics board. You know, so if they're a licensed marriage and family therapist, or they're a psychologist, or they're a counselor, mental health counselor, or a license or a licensed professional counselor, or a social worker, or, or a psychiatrist, or a psychiatric nurse, they there's specific professional organizations that kind of oversee them. And, but at the very least, you can go to your state uh, Department of Health. Um, so what would you do if you were the client at this point? That's a good question. I'd like to think that I would go and talk to my therapist and get information. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if I would. What do you mean? What would you do otherwise? It might feel too scary or mm, irreparable that I might just bag it. And quit? Yeah. Yeah. I might. Yeah. I feel bad for this person. It's a really crappy spot. Right, cuz I might be I might do the same thing because I'm this, just like this person well, being the client. Yeah. Not not the therapist. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh because it's like, well, they've already if I if I felt violated enough, I'd be like, "Well, what's the point of having a conversation with them about it?" <laughs> like I'm just benefiting them and I and I'm angry at them. Yeah. So I I just have to do what's best for me, which yeah. is like terminate, find another therapist, and then tell them, look, by the way, I don't want you talking with anyone about this, even in consultation. Right. You know. Um. So if if self respect is enhanced by going and talking to the counselor, that makes sense. Yeah. Just by if it if it's it helps you to speak for yourself and say I don't like this, I I don't want you to do this or. I'm not going to see you anymore. And if self-respect is enhanced by taking that kind of stand, good on you. If I liked her, if I liked my therapist, I would go to her and I would tell her how I felt. I would tell her to never do it again. To I would tell her to, 
don't even consult about me. Yeah. And I would tell her uh, to tell her colleagues that they are to forget or at the very least not tell anyone about what they have heard. Yeah. And that you made a mistake by revealing all that information that you didn't need to reveal. I, I want you I want you to apologize to me and I want you to apologize and I want you to tell everyone else that you made a mistake by telling information that you didn't need to be telling that honestly is a little gossipy. If if my therapist responded well to that, I would consider continuing with them. Sure. If they responded badly to that, if they were defensive or if they were like um well, I can consult with whoever I want to, mm. or I think you're a little upset, or mm. whatever the bullshit, you know. I'm sorry that you were hurt by that, you know, that kind of <laughs> bullshit. Um, I, I would I would fire that person. Yeah. Because if I did that and, and a client came to me, I would be mortified. I would just be, I would just, I mean, it brings tears to my eyes just thinking about, like, hurting a client in a vulnerable situation like that. You know, if a, if a therapist, if a client came to me, I'd be like, <gasps> I done fucked up. I should not have done that. <laughs> oh my God, you're right. Like, yeah, I'm sorry. Like, yeah, I will immediately go and tell everyone. And and let me give you the names of those people who even know. And, um, you know, it's, it's, and they're respectable people, but I'll tell them for sure, like, keep this under wraps. And yeah, I'm really sorry for, for doing that. Um, one, because it's the right thing to do. And two, because I, you know, I make mistakes all the time. I don't have a problem with apologizing yeah. for them. Uh, so, um, and I value client feedback, you know, student feedback. Uh, when, when people give me feedback, <laughs> I've been talking a lot lately about how YouTube comments have been bothering me because oh, really? so many of them are just horrible. You get YouTube for the podcast? Yeah. For some reason, I started posting the podcast on YouTube uh-huh. uh, years ago. I could go into the details, but... And, you know, emails, people are normal. N- emails, people are negative, but they have... They speak in a more sort of relatable tone or something. People on YouTube, there are comments that are just so bizarre or so hostile or so short, you know, and so, I don't know, just so lacking in social skills. And I, and YouTube, I think the culture is that I, mm-hmm. even if you have social skills, I think the culture of commenting sort of drives you into this like lack of social skills kind of way of communicating. Um, and, or there's a bunch of 12 year olds that just lack maturity, you know <laughs> what I mean? And so, um, so I've been talking about that. So I've been wondering if the listeners are just like, man, Kirk is really sensitive to feedback. I'm actually, I'm sensitive to feedback like anyone else, maybe more so than other people. But I value uh, being able to respond well to negative feedback yeah. uh, when it's when it's not um, hostile, unreasonably hostile, I will say. So when a client tells me something, I, I can immediately sense the tone from them. You know, Im- I immediately like, oh, okay, they're they've just taken a massive leap, and they've been thinking about this for a while, and they're very vulnerable at this moment. And so, I'm going to nail this. I'm going to be open. I'm not going to be defensive, and I'm going to hear this because 
because I've been in their shoes before and I know how this feels, you know? Yeah. Even if I'm like, eh, I don't know if this is so like reasonable. I'm, I just, I'm, I, I know enough to, to nail it. When a student, you know, or a supervisee gives me negative feedback, again, I know that that thing has been germinating for a while. And again, even if it seems unreasonable, uh, particularly at the time, you know, because mm-hmm. I might be defensive. Sure. I will, um, I, there's this place in my, in my routine, in my mind where I go to, I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Show them that they are safe and that they can tell you things and that you're open. You can argue about it sometime later, <laughs> but in all likelihood, you won't need to. Just be a good listener and respond well to this. So, um, and, as soon as I make that shift in my head, it usually makes it so easy to to do it. You know, it's just like, why fight it? You know, maybe they're wrong, maybe they're right. It doesn't really matter. Uh, it's important to listen and to respect people. And, and what a wonderful thing that they're doing. Because the other thing that I'm thinking is like, if I show them that they can give me this feedback, um, our relationship is going to be twice as, you know, deep. Yeah. And... Uh, and if I don't, then the relationship might be over after that. <laughs> and and I, I want them to feel comfortable around me. So so anyway, um, that's what I would do is I, I would I would lay it all out for your therapist. Mm. And if your therapist responds well, then I would consider continuing. And if the therapist doesn't respond well, then I'd be like, eh. Because one, uh, fuck that person. And two, if you can't, trust them you have two data two major data points where you can't trust this person and you need to be able to trust your therapist yeah it doesn't work if you've got that on your mind right um all right how about one more email sounds good uh not patron have you ever had a client where they reminded you of somebody else has this ever impeded the therapy process in any way Bob, what do you think? You know, I was with somebody last week who looks like my sister. Yeah. Okay. And it doesn't, in- it doesn't impede. It's a little distracting. Um, but, you know, it's a come and go kind of thought. Distracting how? Well, because I'm, you know, it just I'm starting to think about my sister and <laughs> my attention is a little split. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not, I wouldn't say that it impedes. It doesn't get in the way and it doesn't last very long. Have you ever... I mean, you've been practicing for 20-plus years. Yeah. Have you ever had someone that really reminded you of somebody? Someone important, like an ex or, or you, you know, your dad or something? No. I, You know, counter-transferential stuff comes up, and then just my own transference comes up. Um, but I, I don't think I've had an experience like that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, well, to me, so you have two questions. Has a client ever reminded me or someone else. It really depends on what you mean by remind. Uh, based on your email, because it was longer than this, I think what you mean, maybe more crucially, is really remind you of somebody. <laughs> you know, like many aspects about them are similar to someone very important to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, your spouse, for example. You know, my God, this person looks like my spouse. They talk like my spouse. They have attitudes, values. I have a reaction to them as if they were my spouse. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's what this patron is actually asking about. Oh. Um, 
So, and you've never had that before. I've not had that experience. I imagine that's distracting. Yeah, I've never had that before either. I mean, I can I can imagine a couple times where I was like, oh, this is interesting. This person has an attitude or a sort of syndrome that is similar to someone important to me. Mm-hmm. I've definitely had that before, where I was like, this person has a syndrome or a complex uh, uh, that's similar to someone close to me. And in those situations, it is actually kind of interesting for me because I'm like, this is an interesting window into that person in my life. Well, oh, right. You know what I mean? Yeah, because the could. person in my life, I, I'm not their therapist and I'm reactive to and everything. My client is coming to me for help and I have compassion for that person and I'm not triggered by this client. So I'm seeing it more objectively. Right. And actually those situations help me to understand people in my life better. Yeah. Because I look at the people in my life and I'm like, I think I understand their problem, you know, because if someone close to you is annoying in some way, has some sort of issue that annoys me, and I I can intellectually kind of get, well, it probably comes from some sort of complex of some kind, Um, but it still fucking annoys me that they do that thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But then you have a client with the exact same or a similar syndrome. It doesn't annoy me because they're a client and I have compassion. I can see it objectively, so to speak. And... And then I slowly over time have a more objective, compassionate view towards the person in my life, you know? Yeah, nice. But I don't think... um, Now, I will say that one time I remember one moment where I was probably like a couple minutes into a line of questioning with a client where I realized you're no longer treating this client. You're actually just trying to figure out the person in your life. You know what I mean? Oh, wow. Like I was asking questions for my own benefit to try to figure this complex out because I wanted to understand the person in my life. Uh-huh. Not that I wanted to treat my client. I don't think my client noticed. It was just a couple of minutes. But it was something I noticed. I was like, oh, don't. You know, like, that's, you're, you're just curious about this syndrome now. You're not actually trying to treat you know this person. It's a perfectly natural thing to have happen. Yeah. Uh, it's not something... I'm sure it's not something you love happening. No. Um, what's great about it is you recognize and you get back to business. Right, exactly. So, so patron, when you ask about remind, um, uh, yeah, I've absolutely had people remind, like you said, like, well, I have someone who kind of looks like my sister. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, or someone who, I don't know, comes from a similar demographic as someone you know or so, or even of yourself or something, for sure. Oh, that happens to me. What? My clients remind me of me frequently. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So that's not what the patron is asking about, right? But no. But but that is answering the question. It's like, yeah, it reminds me of someone. Me. How did how does that go for you? You know, I really like it because for both reasons. One is it often gives me insight and compassion for myself and my own troubles in life. Yeah. But also, my own uh, self awareness will often um, help me, you know, inform me about what might be happening for this person in front of me and how they might be suffering or you know, not getting their needs met or scared or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm fairly disclosing as a counselor. Like, I don't like, you know, it's not my session, mm-hmm. but I do like to be, I, I mean, I'm, I'd like to think I were a little like Irv. Right. Um, and a real person. Right. Yeah. And so you might say like, oh, well, you kind of remind me of myself, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, Sometimes I'll say, oh, yeah, you and I have chewed the same dirt. Chewing the same dirt. We've, we've chewed the same dirt. We have chewed the same dirt. Interesting. Um, did you ever eat dirt as a kid? No, no, never did. You know, growing, you didn't grow up in the woods. No, suburban Philadelphia. Yeah, I grew up in the woods, and so there's a lot of daring each other to eat things. 
We had a friend down the street, Wooder Joe. His name was Walter Joe, but we called him Wooder Joe because everybody in Philadelphia, they say water, they say Wooder. Wooder Joe. And he claimed to eat a mud pie, so we made him one. And he claimed to eat it, but, you know, who knows? It was pretty big. We would pay friends like a dollar to eat a slug. Oh, yeah. I did that for free once. <laughs> you ate a slug? <laughs> Several. What? <laughs> oh, gnarly. Yeah, that was. I was sick for a few days, yeah. You were sick oh, for yeah, a few yeah. days. Yeah. Gnarly. We were sitting in a river pitching them into each other's mouths. <laughs> oh, my God. Was that just a temporary insanity, or did you have a... It was 19 and drunk. <laughs> oh. Well, still. Yeah, yeah. Right. 19. And like big ones or small no, ones? Little ones. Little ones. Little okay. shells, though. Yeah. Oh, snails. Yeah. You ate the, the shell, yeah, too. Yeah, it's swallowed, yeah. Oh, my. How did that come out? <laughs> Runny. <laughs> <laughs> but wouldn't the shell stay intact? Oh, I don't even know. I was so sick. I. So you're talking about snails. Okay, for some reason, snails is like 5% the gross-out factor. Because I'm thinking like a slug. Oh, slugs like they have out here? Yeah. Right? Like a snail would be like, well, you know. Little. Yeah. It's still disgusting. Yeah, yeah. But I've eaten escargot. That's the weird thing. Is like escargot, it's good. Give it a French name. But you pull that. It's a slug you pull out of the shell. Uh Uh-huh. You you know you have those little those little forks yeah. and you pull a an entire slug out of the shell and you eat it and um, it's it's delicious but but if you just put like slugs on a plate without this somehow the shell makes it more palatable uh-huh. I don't know no I get that that makes sense to me but yeah so we would pay people a dollar or two dollars there'd usually some sort of bidding war you know like. Uh, you know, I'll give fifty cents. No, you got to give me five bucks. Five bucks? No way. How about how about two bucks? Two fifty. And and I'm like, hey, do you got an extra fifty cents? To my other friend, he's like, yeah, sure, I'd do that for okay. <laughs> two two dollars fifty cents. Eat that slug. And then there'd be this whole ramp up. It's like, okay, all right, all right. Let me see the money. Okay. Uh, how about five? No, two fifty. You said you were gonna do. Oh, okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. Okay, you know, and like it was a whole thing or a worm. Were you on the eating end of that ever? No. Uh Uh-huh. No. I mean, I'm a Japanese, so I've eaten some disgusting things at home anyway. (laughs) But there's something about just picking up something in the woods, like a slug. Mm -hmm. Because the the thing that – this is a gross thing to say out loud, but I would – you know, you know when you're six or seven, you're still kind of sadistic. You know what I mean? You're, yeah. there's, you're not, you don't have compassion the way you do when you're older. Well, one of the things me and my siblings and my friends would do was, because growing up in the house that we grew up in, in Sammamish, Washington, back then there were horses around, there were there was woods, there was um, cows, there were, you know, it was extremely rural and, and and old growth forests of pines and and alders and maples and stuff and and that was my backyard it was just or actually it was every yard around me we were just surrounded by trees and and so we spent a lot of time in that and mosquitoes and slugs were 
a major character in the story of my childhood. <laughs> I one time counted, I had hundreds of mosquito bites on, oh, my, on my body. Yeah. Because I'd be running around in shorts and a t-shirt right. for the entire summer, and where we lived, it was so damp, because there was so much shade from the forest, sure. that mosquitoes were everywhere. Yeah. And you just couldn't manage the... You know, now when I go to a situation like that, you got your off, you got your long sleeves, you you notice when one's around and you, you know, and you maybe you go home early because they're, you know, oh, here comes the mosquitoes. Back then, there was nothing to do. We didn't, we didn't even have screens on our windows. You know what I mean? It, so mosquitoes probably eating me in the middle of the night. I had spiders and centipedes crawling on my chest because not only did we live in a, in a moist forest, but... I lived in a basement of a house that was basically in a wetlands. Like my parents still live in this house. It's flooded like four or five times. I didn't know that. Three major times. Yeah. And so it was a moist, constantly damp, yeah. constant like, you know, even in the summertime it was the soil oh. was still moist. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And uh the spiders and the centipedes and the mosquitoes and the the what we called mosquito eaters were just all around, you know? And like I said, I would wake up in the middle of the night with, with a, a centipede, not a spider, but a centipede mm. on my chest. Mm. You know, I'd be like, oh, centipede, and, you know, get rid of it. And so the amount of slugs that were around us all the time, they would get into the house sometimes. Yeah. So they were a pest. They were, and you'd step on them and on accident. And, you know, and so one of the things that, that we did because we hated slugs so much because they were everywhere is we would pour salt on them. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it was the weirdest thing to see because their entrails would come out of their ass and they would move really fast because slugs by definition, they move slowly, but you put uh, salt on them and somehow their guts make them move faster as it comes out of their, it's disgusting. Oh my. Right. Yeah. We would, I, I, I had a, you know, model ships were big in the 70s, you know, like a oh, battleship yeah, or right. an airplane. Um, you know, before the internet, we would just make plastic models of yeah. things, you know. And one of the things that uh, we would do is we'd put slugs on the battleship and then we'd put firecrackers on the battleship. And it, it was like World War Two, right? And we would light these slugs and, you know, and just and giggle as these slugs like were um uh dissipated across the yard uh, i talk about this and it's, it's sadistic it's awful i mean we never did anything to cats or because we loved cats we sure. loved dogs we never did i i had a friend that threw a rock at a squirrel once at, at woodland park zoo um and it's it you know we were throw he started throwing rocks at squirrels and I kind of joined in, but there was no way you're going to hit a squirrel from like, you know, 50 yards. You're not going to. And he threw a bullet and hit a squirrel directly in the head. Oh, God. And we, and I was, I was terrified. I was just like, what? You, yeah. you hit it. You hit it. And my friend was like kind of ambivalent because he, he was always a little kind of different. But, um, so I wasn't that way towards other animals, but, but slugs. Slugs. Slugs and, and um, mosquitoes and 
tell you one story about a mosquito. I, I was um, uh, sitting around a summer day board, and I saw a mosquito flying around me. And I'd heard that you can kill a mosquito while it's sucking your own blood if you tense your muscle because the um, you know proboscis or whatever get, gets stuck, stuck and it can't stop drinking your blood and then it'll explode. I've heard that. Right. So I sat there and I saw and I actually put my arm out. It landed on my arm, started sucking blood. I, I you know clenched down, and sure enough, that's what happened. No kidding. And I could see the um, the back of the mosquito just just becoming extremely bulbous with oh. my, with and see through with my own blood. Oh wow! And and I was holding it. And I'm like, okay, you're supposed to explode at some point. Like, there's got to be a limit. And and uh, and somehow it it got free or i or i couldn't uphold the you know yeah. the clenching but it couldn't fly cuz it was so heavy, heavy. <laughs> and it landed on uh my wall and i smashed it and blood went everywhere <laughs> of course <laughs> well that does it for that disgusting episode of so, psychology and Seattle. so oh. apparently you're your patron's question reminds us of our kidhood. <laughs> yeah, how did we get on that? Uh, let's see. Oh, reminding of people. How did we get to that? Yeah, how did we get to that? Well, anyway, she emailed back. So, so I said to her, <laughs> that's right. So I said, so, so, uh, do people remind me of clients? Um, I'm similar to Bob in that it's like, um, yeah, kind of, but uh, pretty peripherally. Has it impeded the therapy process? Similar to what Bob said, not for me. Um, you know, if I had to, I just pay a little bit more attention to my countertransference, which I do all the time anyway. Yeah. Uh, she emailed back, and by the way, she's she's romantically and sexually attracted to her male therapist. And she it wrote, and she yeah, and she wrote, as I was leaving therapy on Thursday, I asked my therapist if I reminded him of anybody. He got really weird and coy and said he wasn't comfortable saying right then. Because I had to go. Mm. I asked him again because it made me so curious, and he refused to say. Mm-hmm. He said he needed to think about it, uh, about how to answer the question. Mm-hmm. The next session, I brought it up. He told me that I reminded him of his aunt. And to be honest, I was immediately upset. First of all, I'm assuming his aunt is older, and this means that he, is, that he obviously doesn't reciprocate feelings for me, which I already knew, but this was confirmation. Mm. We talked about it, and eventually I told him I was disappointed, and we talked through it further. He was awesome about it, as expected. Although I'm still a bit miffed over it, I'm disappointed, but it is what it is. Erotic transference sucks, though, you know? What? Any thoughts about that, Bob? Yeah, that's distracting, and keep talking about it. Yeah, right. And what we always say is that it's a real feeling. Yep. It's It's not puppy love or you know it's it's a real intense feeling just like any other kind of erotic or romantic feelings you have towards someone in your life so it's not something to demean or discount or dismiss but at the same time it is an expression of your need in all likelihood for someone to love you and to pay attention to you and you found that person and you naturally have a lot of intense feelings towards that person because you finally have someone that's meeting your needs, maybe for one of the first times in your life. Yeah. And 
all of your heart is opening up to this person, including romantic feelings and erotic feelings. And it's all kind of part of the package. You know, when you're neglected or abused or relationally traumatized and you find a healing human being who um, is there for you, consistent, not harming you, it's normal to say, well, not only for your heart and your unconscious, not, you know, for that part of you, not only to be like, Ooh, I want to talk to this person all the time. I want to tell them everything that's on my mind. I want to ask for support. I want to, I want them to hear me. I want them to see me. I want them to take care of me. And I want them to love me and to have sex with me and to be with me forever and to hold me and to take me out to dinner and to say love, lovey things. Like it's all part of the package, you know, because that it's natural to go there. But anyway, so you asked your therapist, so would you do that if, if, so say you had a client that reminded you of your aunt. Okay. And your client at the end of the session says, so do I remind you of anyone? What would you have said? Um, well, I might have punted and said, let's talk about it next time. The similar way to the way he did. Yeah, not to punt, not to be coy though, but to more like, that's a doorknob question. You know, that question might have a lot of meaning to it. And I'd probably want to talk to the person about what does my answer mean to them more than how do I want to answer this question? Yeah. Do you want to explain what a doorknob question is? Yeah, it's it's when you have the courage to say the thing that it's really hard to say because you're leaving. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you might have done this and... It sounds like you would have done the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, what, I, what w- w- might you have just said, even though she did remind you of your aunt, might you have said like, no, you don't really remind me of anyone. I might. Yeah. I might say that. Why? But when, why, why that's lying to the client though. Yeah. But, um, is it necessary? Right. Right. And I, I've been going back and forth with another patron about this. Um, cause I, I, I can't remember what I said. I, I, th- I said something like, there are some situations where I'm just I'm just going to lie essentially and just say I mean I don't really consider it lying I just consider it like well it's not relevant and it's not important what Rebecca Bloom would say is <laughs> clients don't have the right to know things about you oh yeah you know what I mean like you know just because you're a client doesn't mean you have the right to know my inner workings you no. know what I mean so um, uh, but. Yeah, for me, there are situations like what you're saying where I would just be like, this might trip this person up to such a degree that it's not going to be helpful and it's not really significant and I and and it doesn't matter that it, that this person reminds me of my aunt. Now, wait, do I know that they have erotic transference? Yeah. When they ask the question? Yeah, let's, well, let's say that. Oh, then I definitely would really want to get this spotlight right back on what's going on for you. Do you want me to be reminded? Is that somehow... Would you reveal it, though? Nah, probably not. Right. Again, because the minefield is such... Like, you know, it happened to this... Now, I don't think this therapist did the wrong thing. No, not at all. But there's a risk there of just, like, um, uh, it hurting the client's feelings, even though it's not... um, uh, unreasonable to, to say such a thing to a client, like "Oh yeah, you remind me of my aunt," kind of. Um, but it's clinically something you want to be like, well, pros and cons here. And do I think I can pull off the lie? That's always the other thing too. It's just like, can I? Is it something? Because because the opposite. So 
the risk of saying, no, you don't remind me of my aunt, is what if at some point you do say that they do remind you of your aunt? Then the client's like, well, wait, last time you said, right. and that and that could be a massive rupture right there. Because sure. if your client is like, you've lied to me. Um, but the other thing is, is that I think what the, the other patron was asking me about was, um, would you tell a client if you were attracted to them? So say you're say you're just minorly attracted, or I don't know, whatever level of attraction, sexual attraction you have to towards the client, and they're like, "So are you sexually attracted to me?" Nope. What, what you would say, no, no, right? So give me your justification for that. I don't. I don't. I think it just has too much. It gets too distracting because that becomes a focus, or it could become a focus. I don't really want to talk about that. I right. don't want to. I don't want to talk about my feelings of attraction to anybody except my wife. Yeah, yeah, and um, I don't see any relevance. I don't see any therapeutic benefit when I have had sexual attraction to clients. Usually, what I do if it's distracting to me is I talk about it with, you know, a colleague or yeah. a team. Right. Um, and I remember the first time it happened to me, it scared the shit out of me. I was so scared of what that must mean, and everybody was really cool. They're like, you know, it happens. It's okay. Yeah. And one guy said to me. Um, you know, it's just an opportunity for you to think about what, you know, what's getting stirred up for you. Like you might as well learn from it. So I did, and that was good. And, um, but I don't see the need to reveal that kind of information and I don't think it's useful. So I get so many emails from people talking about, um, scenarios where their therapist did tell them. Huh. And I think there's this general... A philosophy out there that you are supposed to tell your client about it or something. I don't get that. Yeah, I don't get it either. I mean, I get the, I get the, you know, it's all about being congruent. You don't want to drive your clients crazy, you know, with incongruence sure. and stuff. But at the same time, it it almost always goes badly for these people. They'll just be like, I feel like I'm really distracted by it now. I I'm wondering. Does he fantasize about me, um, or 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 do we have a chance together? Because I'm sexually attracted to him too, and right. now I realize he does for me. And like it really becomes a not just a distraction, but like a a destructive force to the whole premise of therapy. You know, um, so I'm glad to hear you would do because that's what I was telling this other patron. I was just like, actually. If if it was an attraction, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't say anything about yeah. it. I would go to my consultants. I would go to my therapist. I would think about it, and I would manage it. And um, but I don't see the point in telling my client about it. Um, uh, you know, and, unless it's so overwhelming that. But even then, you know, I can't imagine why. Like, I guess the only situation I can imagine where where I might is if I was having to forcefully terminate a client like in the middle of treatment or something and I would just be like actually I have to tell you like the reason why is because I have a problem and this is the problem yeah and it's been and it's so uh because if it was in the middle of treatment with someone who with relational traumas you know I would it was like well you know I could I could say a different story of just like well I'm closing my practice or um, I am having significant countertransference, but I'm not going to tell you what about, you know what I mean? Like that could be a little oh, crazy. That making. would feel weird. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I could imagine saying in a situation like that. So I've been struggling for a long time with 
um, my own issues of, of sexuality, um, in, in regards to you and it's all my fault. And I've given a lot of thought and I tried to get rid of it and I tried to consult. I got therapy and nothing really worked. And I find that it's, it's just impossible for me to talk to you. It's like you're saying, I can't be the therapist you need me to be. Right. Right. Not I'm getting rid of you. Right. It's like, you don't want me as your therapist. Take take it from me. You know what I mean? And, but, um, but aside from that, I can't imagine why I would. Has that ever happened to you? No, no. Actually, I've talked about it before on the podcast. I, so I've done a lot of research on erotic countertransference. Really? Yeah. And the statistics are that uh, men and women, um, the vast majority of them report having, at some point in their career, erotic countertransference. It'd be hard to not. Yeah. But. For me, I'm at one end of the spectrum. I have, I can't remember a time where I was sexually attracted to a client. Um, I'm sure it's maybe happened kind of, but in talking with colleagues, men and women, they they have several stories off the top of their head where like, oh, there was this one person, this other person. And for me, I, I just, I don't know what it is, um, but it, I have other problems. I get angry at clients. <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll get, I'm, I'll get narcissistic with clients. Like, listen to me. Mm-hmm. I have the answers yeah, or, right. you know, um, but when it comes to being sexually attracted to a client, like it, that just doesn't engage in me. Do you know what I mean? Well, well, how are we defining that? Yeah. Well, what, how I'm referring to it now is an sort of an unwanted arousal or, fantasy about a client mm, i don't permit those yeah but but popping into your head sure those things pop in and i i pop them back out or like um so that would be what i'd be talking about sort of like oh, an okay. involuntary oh. popping into the head um or a, a desire to want to fantasize about a client or i've never had either of those or you know someone is wearing a sexy outfit and you're like wanting to look at it more, well, more, yeah. more than their face or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I, it, that just doesn't happen to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can think of many situations where that might have been an issue if it weren't the therapy context. But I guess I'm so hyper focused on my duty. Yeah. And my mode that it just doesn't enter my brain. Yeah. I, I imagine that physicians, you know, gynecologists, <laughs> heterosexual male gynecologists, or heterosexual female uh, urologists. Urology? Is it urology? The yeah. penis penis doctor? Yeah. Um, that, or you know, a gay uh, female gynecologist or other. Sure. That that when you're at work. You you're at work and you're doing work things and this is a patient and you have a job and you have a duty and um, in another context <laughs> maybe you have different yeah. aspects of your brain that kick in but for me that's how it feels to me how, how's it for you I don't know if you want to talk about well it. I, no I'm fine to talk about it I mean sometimes people are beautiful mm-hmm. they walk in the door and there they are they dress beautifully or they're... right so there's an acknowledgement of like I bet you this person is attractive yeah or in another context I'd be attracted to this person oh sure. But that's different than actually being attracted. Well, I mean, you know, like, I guess I could say, yeah, I've been attracted to clients, you know, 
several beautiful people have walked through my door. And, um, you know, it's like, that's not why we're here. I'm kind of busy with why we are here. And it's it's been mildly distracting from time to time, but it doesn't last. And I just wait it out and then it goes away and, you know, off we go. Yeah. But, you know, I got to tell you, I really like working with people. And so I'm not really interested in what they look like. Hmm. I'm really interested in how they are and they fascinate me. And I have tremendous admiration and respect for the kinds of bravery. I'm kind of busy with that. Right, exactly. It's a matter of focus. Yeah, focus. That's a nice way to put it. Yeah. And if you were dating or something, oh, well. and that was, and it was a date, and you're like, well, maybe we're going to have some business time later on. Do you watch um, Flight of the Concords? I've heard that one. <laughs> Wednesday night. Yeah, Wednesday night. I got my socks on. <laughs> it's business time. They're business socks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're reading your book. So coy over there. <laughs> uh, you're going to get ready for about two and a half minutes of some prime business time. Uh, God, fly to the Congress. I've been going occasionally when I get bored or distracted, I go to YouTube and just watch um, a live performance of Flight of the Concords. Those guys are funny. God, I missed that show. It was only on for like two or three seasons. Mm-hmm. And it's so good. It's like the first few seasons of Arrested Development or something. You oh, know? yeah. Uh, anyway. So that does it for that episode. Thanks for joining me, Bob. It was nice to be here. Thank you. And uh, I've been saving these questions for you for a long time. Oh, no. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, let's, I'll come back sooner. Because I can't talk with Umberto about these things. He doesn't know anything about this sort of oh, thing. Right. He'd be like, well, of course I'd be sexually attracted to clients. Is your podcast different depending on who you're talking to or when you're by yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so okay. I gear the topics toward the situation. So right. there are some topics where it's like I can't really do it with anyone else because it's a lot of me just rambling about my notes and da da da. Yeah. And um, but when I get therapists therapy questions, I save them for you. Cool. Thanks. Uh, any updates on your life you want to talk about? No. No. Uh, are you looking forward to Penn State's uh, year? I mean, they're they're. What do we got? Another four, four months? months? Then they'll start playing um, again. You know, I got to tell you, I'm ambivalent about football these days. It's just so violent. It's violent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's really hard. You know, knowing what we know now about you know ongoing traumatic brain injury. Right. It's. Um, I still watch it and still love it. Oh yeah. But when a Whiteout is doing a crossing pattern, uh, you know, around the place where the, you know, the, a linebacker or a strong safety is going to be like, I am cringing. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, oh God. Yeah. Just, you know. Yeah. Just arms only. Yeah. Just tackle with the arms and the chest, not, not your head. Don't use your head. And you see that stuff. And I used to do it too. Right. I used to, I used to lead with my head. One year when I played football, I, um, I I played with a neck brace kind of thing on my shoulder pads. You, the, the, people don't wear them anymore, but back in the day that you'd wear these these neck things. And basically what it did was when you hit someone with your head, your 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 helmet would hit the pad mm-hmm. and then 
the pad would hit your shoulder pads and your shoulder pads would hit your shoulder. So it kept your neck from compressing essentially. (laughs) And it effectively, it was extending your shoulders into the top of your head, if Mm -hmm. that makes any sense. So so when you hit something, you didn't break your neck as easily. (laughs) And, and I had, so many neck problems oh, in football. Like I, I remember I had, uh, I just sit out a couple games actually in my senior year because I had a pinched nerve down, down my arm. Oh, yuck. And, um, you know, and of course y- you talk to the, the physician and they're like, ah, yeah, maybe pinched nerve. Like maybe, maybe take a couple, couple weeks off and, and come back, you know? Um, people would have concussions in the middle of a game mm-hmm. and, uh, and come back in later. Yeah. I, I had concussions in the middle of a game. I remember one time I was, you know, playing. I played running back and linebacker. Mm-hmm. I got hit so hard in the head because that's one thing that you don't really. Did you? Did you play football? Oh hell no! Playing football, it, it they make it. You know, they got pads on yeah. and everything. It makes it look like it's not painful, but every hit hurts. Mm-hmm. Those those pads just distribute the pain to other parts. You know, more <laughs> global parts of your body. To the point where people frequently, as a congratulatory thing, will hit you in the head. Oh, yeah. They'll hit you on the head of the helmet. Imagine if I just went up to your head right now, Bob, and just slapped this, your skull as yeah. hard as I could. Right. It's going to hurt, right? Oh, yeah. Well, when people hit you in the helmet, it hurts. Really? It just distributes the pain more, more globally oh. towards your entire skull, not just one spot. And I'd be like, stop slapping my head. Yeah. Like, slap my ass. That's yeah. fine. Sure. Um, my shoulders, you know, but that can hurt too. Because I had a coach that he would get so angry at halftime, he would just start hitting people on the, on the shoulder pads and it hurt. And he was a strong dude. Yeah. He was, he was, he got so angry one time, he punched his own clipboard and it shattered in a you know, Those I don't know. Those things like, are hard to break. Yeah. Imagine punching a clipboard and shattering it into a hundred pieces. That's how angry he was. Oh my God. Um, very motivating. <laughs> uh, and uh, anyway, so I would, you know, every time, so playing running back is the most, one of the most brutal positions oh, yeah. you can play. Because when you're a lineman, you're absolutely in the trenches. You're absolutely grinding it out. But when you get that ball as a running, especially in you know when you're playing pee wee in high school football, it's pretty much run, 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 run. You know, it's, it's every every play is a run. You'd pay, you you don't have a good passing finesse at that point. And every time you get hurt, every time you get hit, it's like a fifty percent chance that it is going to be painful. Yeah. You know, some some tackles it would just sort of glance off you, sort of fall down. But when someone just hits you straight on, I mean, I have a broken bone in my back currently. Oh, geez. And actually, I have a slipped disc because of it. Oh, yeah. Not because I was hit in the back, but because me and another guy hit each other so hard. I, um, he was he was running he was the running back, and he it was a sweep, and I was the middle linebacker, and I I sprinted out to the sideline to catch him, and we both turned at the same time and squared off and hit each other in the helmet oh as hard and we and he was shorter and stouter than i was yeah and we hit each other so hard that both of our momentum canceled each other out and so we were running at each other stopped boom uh, but our uh my back snapped, snapped. back so fast oh, God. that it broke my back and but it's a bone that it you're not immediately you don't immediately notice yeah 
anyway, so, um, uh, yeah. So, uh, so when I watch football, it, yeah, every, everything yeah. hurts. And I just think about all the opioids that they must be on oh, or, yeah. or the marijuana or yeah. whatever they're doing to stimulants or whatever they're doing to kind of keep that up, you know, um, for sure. But man, do I love watching football. <laughs> <laughs> and and they they keep adding more and more rules and more protocols to try to protect the players. Yeah, um, like they are much more strict with the um, with the targeting uh, right. calls, calls that even five years ago they never would have called. You know, uh, particularly like twenty years ago. I mean, hits today uh that they throw a flag at pretty readily in the past you'd be like yeah right. you know good hit yeah and now you're like oh you don't yeah. lead with the head yeah. you know because because that they call it spearing when i was a kid it's always been illegal to to lead with your head yeah um for reasons for both players right but they never upheld it i i don't remember spearing ever being called wow. when, when i was a kid <laughs> one time uh uh, I, me and so th- we were. I was playing defense, and this this running back was running with the ball, and I speared a guy with with my head, but I was up high, and and, and a friend of mine who's short, um, speared him low. Oh wow! And we were coming from opposite directions, right? And that boy, his leg snapped, and it he was he was screaming so loudly. Oh god. An ambulance had to come out on the field to pick him up. Oh, poor guy. And, uh, yeah, you just think about stuff like that. You're just like, football is so violent. Yeah. It's it's so awful. Yeah. But it's so... So do you find yourself enjoying it less because of that? Yeah. You know, it's... I mean, it's a, it's a tremendous skill, and it's, you know, fun to watch, but it's just like, I just feel like... These people are putting themselves in harm's way, and I don't know if I want to support that. Yeah. Well, I, I'm just supportive of more rules around. Yeah. Because you can do it. It, it. It's kind of a cultural thing. You know, you yeah. work it into the training. Yeah. Where, because the thing is, is what's happening right now is you have a bunch of pro players who were indoctrinated into a culture where that wasn't a problem. Right. And would even encourage it. Right. So... If they're, I hope they are. I'm guessing they are. Starting with no targeting, no spearing as a child. By the time you get older, it just becomes muscle memory. Right. Because I see these guys, you know, safeties, camp chancellor, these kinds of guys. I see them tackling. I'm like, yeah, that's how they taught us to tackle. Right. You know, you you throw your body into it. That's you know, and your head happens to be a part of that. Yeah. And uh, so I, I'm I'm hopeful that they can somehow reduce the injuries. And, right. Um. I don't know. Give give the players more time to rest, maybe, or um, better helmet technology. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's sort of like with boxing. It's like you can't really. Maybe there's no way around it. I think there's no way around it. Yeah. I mean, you can mi- maybe minimize, but you're only going to get so much return. But I was listening to a podcast where they're interviewing a guy who I think he had died or had killed himself or something, a pro football player. I can't remember. And they were talking to his family and they were, and he died like in his thirties or forties or something. And 
they were talking to his family and although they were very upset about it, they were, you know, the podcasters, interviewers, it might've been this American life. They were asking them about, um, do you, how do you feel about the whole thing? And they're like, well, you know, we don't like to have lost him, but we know that he wouldn't have done it any other way because he loved the game Mm -hmm. and he loved playing for the NFL. Mm -hmm. And I think he would have thought it was worth it. Which is it? Which I think is an interesting thing because it's because mm-hmm. we automatically look, like from a certain perspective, you're just like, well, of course we have to get rid of football, and of course it's um, harmful to the players, and we need to protect the players. So let's get rid of football. But to some people, it's worth it to them. You know, mm-hmm. going to Mars. There are people who are have already signed up to say, I'll fly to Mars. Well, that's a death trip. You know in all likelihood, and there are certain sort of plans, it's just like, you're not coming back. And in all likelihood, you're going to die at some point, you know, early. Yeah. And there are people who sign up for that. So there are some situations where people are like, look, I don't, I don't care if this shaves off mm-hmm. 20 years, 40 years of my life. Right. Um, I want to do this. Yeah. And, and I'm willing to roll the dice, I guess, is the thing. Any thoughts on that? There are plenty of people that are willing to roll the dice for lots of things. Right. And, you know, it's 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 not for us to decide, right? you know, what you should or shouldn't do with your time. Right. So that's another thing. It's like if, like when I watch boxing or, or UFC or something, I, I assume that these people know what they're getting into, right? Because it's been well known that your brain doesn't do well under those conditions yeah. or, or your your joints in the UFC don't do well. I have a friend, Ivan Salivary, who was big into UFC. He actually has a gym downtown Seattle, which you can take classes from. You can actually, did you know that? That in Seattle, you can, you know, how there's gyms or um, you can take like karate classes yeah. or something. He, You can take UFC classes. Jeez. Or, you know, what do you call it? Um, uh, mixed martial mis- arts. Mixed martial arts classes, yeah. yeah. And he's had to replace both of his hips and he's, oh, and he's, he's our age. Oh wow, and and we're not that old, <laughs> right? But you know, with all the kicking and the jumping and the rolling around, like his hips just had just, had enough. Yeah, and so um, I think what gets tricky about this, though, yeah, is that um, you know, if you're growing up poor or disadvantaged, absolutely, your choice is different than if you're growing up, you know, privileged or you know. The choice is really, it really is different because the meaning of the thing and the value of the thing is really different. Absolutely. So that, that it gets a little bit, you know, absolutely. Blurry. Yeah. A lot of the people who are, um, you know, willing to do those kinds of things uh, do come from right. marginalized groups and, yeah. and might not have another way to find the meaning in life that, that they're seeking or something, um, for sure. So yeah. all that has to be looked at too. Right. Um, so I forgot I wanted to talk another thing about Irvin Yalom. Oh. In his memoir, right. he talks about his lifelong love of gambling and playing cards. Really? Yeah. Who knew? Who knew? What does he play? Poker. But he plays everything. So in when he was a kid, there in uh, New York or Philadelphia? Baltimore. Baltimore. No, D.C. Well, D.C., Baltimore. Yeah. Uh, specifically D.C. D.C., okay. He was his parents had a grocery store. They were immigrants from Russia, Russia. I believe. Yeah. Um, and But originally from Polish ancestry. Yeah. And they were 
frequent, you know, customers come in and, and he would work in the store and he'd meet customers. And one of the customers was some sort of bookie or some kind and had like a ton of money. And he was like, Ooh. And then he, and then in the neighborhood, there was like a numbers sort of lottery game you could play that was run by an unofficial situation. Right. And then he, uh, had, he developed his own numbers game at school. No shit. And, um, it was based on baseball on like, um, you can bet on three, uh, players getting two hits in a particular game and the chance of three players getting two hits two on bases yeah. or two hits is pretty slim yeah he worked it out it's like oh it's one it's you know one in 20 and he would give people a one in 15 and so he would make money you know off the deal and so he's a kid and he's running this kind of racket <laughs> And making money, and then he, you know, would gamble all sorts of things, like just, you know, on baseball games, or you know, he, and then he started playing poker, and he had like a regular po- poker group, and and as he aged into his seventies and eighties, he stopped being able. To, he he says, there's there's a lot of grief and loss about getting old. You can't, you know, I can't run, I can't run marathons, or I can't run long distance anymore. I can't do this. I can't do that. Um, but the one that really hurts the most is I can't play poker anymore with my friends, which I'm trying to figure out why. But anyway, that's what he's saying. And actually, when I asked him about this, yeah, I think he started to cry a little bit. Oh, when I when I said about um, his love of gambling and poker, I think it reminded him of that loss, and I think he started to cry. Oh, um, but. So he's at the point now where he doesn't do any official gambling, so he ropes his wife into gambling. So he talks about this one uh, anecdote in which they're going to a party, and she's trying to convince him to wear a tie. And he's like, okay, fine, I'll wear the tie, but I'll bet you $20 no one at this event is wearing a tie except for me. <laughs> and she and she's like, uh, okay, I'll bet you 20 bucks." And so he's like, he's, he still yeah. loves to gamble. He yeah. just has his thing. Uh, any thoughts about that? Because you and I... Like, love to play cards, love to gamble. I've changed. But we used to... Oh, love cards. I still love cards. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts about that? I'm glad he's found a way to have some passion. But I asked him if he thought there was a thing about therapists and gambling. Oh, do you think there is? I never thought about it. I don't think so, but I wonder. Or I wonder if there's a particular kind of therapist that is attracted to gambling. Jeez, I never, you know, I never, what do you think? Is there psychology there? Well, I was talking to someone else about this. They're like, well, you know, reading people. Oh, right. Playing poker. But to me, I'm not the sort of poker player that tries to read people. I I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care. I'm more, it's more the rush. Yeah. It's more like the, what's going to happen this time? Right. Can I pull up a bluff or. Yeah. Yeah. I've got money on the line. Right. Or. I know I've got the nuts, and no one else knows. Right. Oh, my God. Heart heart (laughs) a-pounding. Or, oh, my God, I just put, like, a $100 bet on black. Yeah. You know? (gasps) Yeah. (gasps) It it, it just, it, it, it's a, I've always, I've thought about this over the years. It's an artificial way to create drama in your life. Right. Uh, you either win big or you win or you or you lose big right um you know it's like that line from oh some s- kind of wonderful some kind of wonderful that we always say it's like how do you win big 
What do you got to do to win big? What do you got to do to win big? You got to lose big. What are we doing? We're losing big. We're losing big. (laughs) And uh, you and I would say that all the time. But yeah, yeah, I mean, we we went through a phase where we like to go bowling every now and then. Oh, yeah. And then that quickly evolved into into bowling for dollars. Bowling for dollars, yeah. And uh, that became a serious thing. You know, I have a joint savings account with Michael where we've kept the bowling for dollars money. What is that? For what? So the first one of us that rolls 260 or better gets the dough. We've how, how much is in there? $255. 260 is impossible. Well. How high did you guys ever get? My, my high is 256, but that's league, and league doesn't count. 256? Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, good night. Yeah. That's incredible. Wow. I... Ha- no matter how many times I go bowling, I'm still as bad as I was like probably the fifth time I ever went bowling. <laughs> I've I've gone bowling probably uh, maybe 50 times in my life, mm. maybe more. And every time I bowl, it's like I'm good for like three or four spares and strikes. Yeah. You know? And then maybe even a gutter ball in there. Oh, sure. You know? And it's like... um uh, you know, anywhere from like a score of 85 to 140 or something. If I got 140, I'd be like, well, oh, I yeah. think one time I got like 160 or nice. 70 or something. And, uh, but yeah, did you get good doing those? Is that when you got good or were you always good at bowling? Bowling? Yeah. Oh, um, I was always okay at bowling and I got good at it since I started league three years ago. Interesting. Yeah. Because I remember when we started out playing late night bowling oh, and, yeah. and Ballard and stuff. Sunset lanes. All of us were terrible. Yeah. All of us were like me, where yeah, it was yeah, like, yeah. you know, if you broke a hundred, it was a good night. Right. And then over time, I would go bowling with you guys every now and then, and I was like, man, you guys are now putting spins on the ball. Yeah, yeah, totally. You're trying to curve it, mm-hmm. and I'm like, what's going on here? I was yeah. like, man, you bought your own balls. Yeah, yeah your own ball. That's it, man. Uh, Michael had a ball that said Sparky on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, he still has it. And I was like, man, you guys are taking it way too seriously. <laughs> That actually, it's, it's, I mean, you know, I loved and I still do uh, playing cards with you guys, but yeah. um, that actually became uh, a similar thing with when it came to when it came to poker. Because you know, when you when you when we would play poker, uh, you know, you, me, Mike, Beth, Todd, yeah, um, right, and um, uh, what was that other guy's name who moved away? Um, Aaron. Well, it was Aaron. There was Will, but then there was that other guy that had that had that wife that everyone hated. Oh, um, Keith. Keith, yeah. yeah. Uh, they're not together still, are they? No. No. Um, <laughs> just the off chance that <laughs> Is he listening in? Keith, hi, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. But I remember we would watch Sonics games. Oh, yeah. This is like 97, 98. Right. And we would then just, we would play poker. And the games we would play would be five-card draw, seven-card stud. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Jaworski high low. Right. We would play. Uh, you know, this is the general games that my dad taught me to play. Right. And then, us, and then, then I started introducing uh, uh, bloody, bloody sevens, sevens, which is like a bluff. If you if you ever played, is it bluff? I think the game is called I don't know guts. Game. Guts is the game. Uh, if anyone ever played guts, oh yeah, yeah. This we, is this is guts, but like more likelihood you're going to have a good hand because there's like wild cards. But anyway. Um, people would lose oh. hundreds of dollars playing that game. It was so awful. Uh, but anyway, so we'd play that game. And uh, then for, at some point, someone started introducing Texas Hold'em. Oh, yeah. And Omaha and, and other kinds of Hold'em games. Right. And 
and it was like okay every every you know tenth game uh, you know because I love playing seven card stud that's just a you know two down four up one down it's yeah. just like a beautiful game it, there's there's a lot of drama that happens in that situation yeah. there's a lot of chances of things happening throw a wild card in there you know one eyed jacks and like it gets exciting yeah um, and random enough that like you could win any hand really any hand you, you just win. don't really know what's going to happen you don't. When we start introducing, and then Omaha was fun because again, it's so random that you right. can't really, you can't. There's no real system to that game, but Texas Hold'em is so, so tiny of a premise that it reduces the entire game to this very small sliver of act, of possibilities. Yeah, like with Texas Hold'em, pretty much from the from the very first two cards you get, you know if you should stay in or out. Oh, I should hope so. Right. But when it comes to seven card stud or five card draw, you have no idea. People stay in. They keep they they keep betting, and they also don't bet a lot of money because they're just like, well, God knows what's going to happen the next round we go around. Right. Um, and so so with Texas Hold'em, the thing I didn't like about it was like, you know, we'd have eight people sitting around the table, and like from the from the first two cards, like maybe you know only two people would stay right. in, and I'm like, this game's kind of dumb. Like I don't want to sit around and wait for wait. this whole thing to happen. Yeah, like, right. I, I want to play. Yeah, I want everyone to play. Right. Um, I like that whole thing where it's like you know you're going around the table and you're you're giving your card out and you're right. seeing what everyone's getting. And you're just yeah. like oh someone's doubled up, you know. And yeah. it's just like it's fun. It's yeah. a group activity. And the other, the shift that happened when I started playing when when I occasionally play with you guys was with Hold'em. It was it became a serious matter. Yeah. You know, it became like, I'm trying to win now. Right. Whereas back in the day, you tried to win, but you but you just knew like, well, God knows what's going to happen. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and if I lose, you know, it's fine. We paid for very low stakes. Right. And yeah. the, the point wasn't to win money. The point was, I mean, the point is to win money, but we weren't playing for sums of money that anybody actually mattered. I mean, no, I remember we would buy in for $5 five bucks. and that would last us the whole night. Yeah, except for Bish who would write individual $1 checks. <laughs> <laughs> um that's hilarious uh yeah so by the time we started playing hold'em we were in for 20 bucks 40 bucks you know and it became more yeah. of, of a thing which is why i stopped playing oh really yeah so what was your journey with that because because i you know i wasn't really hanging out with you guys as much during that time it got to be that it wasn't fun i didn't like how i felt and i didn't like how i acted and so i it just wasn't fun anymore so i just stopped playing yeah it was too serious I mean, I remember that happening with all of us, even with the $5 thing. Yeah. But it was, like, tolerable somehow. There was always someone who would freak out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who would just be like, God fucking damn it. Right, like, right. you know, you just, you, you get legitimately angry yeah. at how absurd it is that you can't win a hand. Right. You know? But, yeah, definitely when Hold'em came around, it became much more about, like, it felt like if you lost, you were legitimately a bad person. <laughs> You know, like you're a, you're a chump, you know, uh, yeah. you don't know how to play the game. Right. Uh, I, I remember, uh, it was, I think I told you this before, but it was particularly, uh, noticeable to me cause, cause I would only play, I don't know, once a year with you guys. Right. And so as you guys were getting more serious, I wasn't. And so I would, I'd be like, okay, fine. We're playing hold them, whatever. And because I play once a year and I didn't really care, I stayed in on almost every single hand. I didn't right. care if I had terrible cards and I didn't care if I lost, right. a, you know, a dollar here and there. 
and I stayed in on this one hand and won it. But my but my car, I won on the on the what's the, the river the flop the river yeah um the last card that yeah. you see uh you know that the dealer shows I won like on a straight I yeah. filled a inside filled straight or something right and people at the table were legitimately <laughs> angry at me. <laughs> They're like, why did you stay in? Stay in, right. Like, that's bullshit. We pulled a Phil Helmuth on you. And I'm like, um, it's called poker. Poker. It's called gambling. Sure. Like, I, I made a choice. Yeah. And the chance of me winning was slim, but I won. Yeah. So fuck off. Yeah. Like but, this is, and plus this is for fun. Right. And, and it, but it was like legitimately like a transgression. Yeah, I remember. It was something that, do you remember that moment? I don't remember that particular hand. I just remember that time. Yeah. And about like how that attitude gets it. Like when I, didn't, I, I didn't like feeling that way, Kirk. Yeah. I didn't like feeling that serious and irritated. It's like, why? Yeah. It's not fun. So right. I stopped. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah. I, I felt similar about golf. You know, we, we Oh yeah. We all got into golf for a while. For a while. And at in the beginning it was like, Oh my god, I'm so terrible at golf. Sure. And then I got a little better. I'm like, Oh, I'm getting a little better. This is kind of fun. And then I would have a bad day and my mood would just plummet. Like what what's the point? Yeah. I just it would make it would put me in a bad mood the whole week. I'd yeah. just be like, I can't believe right. how I can't believe that I put one into the woods like three times in one hole, you know, I just, how does that happen? How do I drive a ball, you know, 300 yards straight? Yeah. One moment. Is 300 yards far? That's far, right? 300? Yeah. Yeah. That's like pro far. Okay. So 200. I feel like some of you guys would drive. Hunter can drive that far. Oh. Uh, My best drive is probably like 220. Okay. I mean, it, (laughs) it got so bad that, um, I started driving with my two iron. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> oh, oh! You don't mean driving around in your car with your two iron always ready. You mean driving with your two. Iron. I if I play golf and I don't play golf much anymore, I I don't go any any higher than the seven iron. I play everything with a seven iron. Or really? Ball. Oh yeah! Wow! For you, this reason, you drive with a seven iron. Oh yeah, yeah. Off on a par five. Yeah, on a par five, you're still going to get there in three. It's going to get there in three whether I hook it into the woods or hit a safe seven iron. Right, right. And, and safe is relative because I shank those into the woods too. Right. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, people would laugh at me because I, I would drive with an iron. Yeah. And I'm just like, well, woods, it's it's a totally different yeah. stick. It's much longer. Yeah. Um, and it's a totally different technique of, of swing too because right. you're further out and yeah. the it, the weight is different. Right. And I'm just like, why would I want to take that chance? Yeah. I'm still going to shank it into the woods. But, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So I stopped golfing because I, because I, because I cared so much. Yeah. And I'm like, it's no longer fun. Now the best thing about golf is the beer. <laughs> uh, yeah. And being with your buds and yeah. being outside and right. and um, I don't know, just the 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 fun of it all. Yeah. You know, similar to poker, right? Well, ideally, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, how do we get on that topic? Irv. Irv likes to gamble. All right. So, I thought that was interesting. It, I'm surprised. You're right. He doesn't fit the stereotype. The the picture in my head. Yeah. The idealized picture in my head. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, but he, he loved to, he loved, I mean, he loved gambling more than we loved gambling. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. Shit, you're running a numbers game when you're in high school. Holy cow. Yeah. But like, what a good, what a smart dude 
to run a 20 to 1 odds gig and and give 50 15 to 1 and you know over time uh you're going to win you're going to win you're going to that's like a job yeah uh and as a better you're going to be like well yeah I don't know it's fine I'll put I'll put 50 cents right on that I'll, you know if if I get 15 to 1 like whoa you know yeah um yeah he talks about in his book how he still gets emails from his poker friends inviting him even though they know he's not going to come but they he says well i think they just send me the emails out of courtesy because they don't want to make me feel like i'm not invited but every time i get that email it hurts do you think he's having some kind of cognitive problem a little oh poor guy a little yes but not like severe yeah but like he was talking when i interviewed him he talked about how his because of his memory issues he can only write short stories. He can't write... He wants to write novels, but he says, you have to keep too much in your head. Yeah. So he is going to stick to short stories. <laughs> and his memoir is kind of set up like that because yeah. each chapter is on a different topic and it and each chapter is like, you know, five, six pages or something. So right. I, was, I was wondering if that's why he um, organized Made it that choice, way. Yeah. But yeah, maybe that's why. Maybe it wasn't because it was energy, but because it was memory. Or no, no, his memory and eyesight. Oh, that's what he said. He says he can't see the he can't see the cards, so he ends up staying in when he shouldn't, or something like right, that. Right. I think that's what he said. Yeah. Anyway, well, thanks for joining me, Bob. Pleasure to be here. Uh, take care of yourself out there because you deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> 